Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Fall is in the air, and although it feels like the perfect time to turn up your horse's turnout, proceed with caution. As the seasons change, the sugar content in grass increases, a bad recipe for easy keepers. The folks at Equithrive have formulated products to help you navigate these potential pasture pitfalls. Equithrive's Metabarol is a pelleted supplement that is scientifically proven to support healthy metabolic function and a healthy inflammatory response in horses. It's bonafide joint and metabolic support all in one easy to feed pellet. It's a smart choice for easy keepers on limited or restricted diets. Visit equithrive.com today and use the promo code HUMBLEHOOF to get 20% off your first order plus free shipping. www.equithrive.com I recently spent some time at the National Alliance of Equine Practitioners Conference in Saratoga Springs, and it was just fantastic. It was one of those things where light bulb moments were going off every few minutes in these sessions, and I was so glad that I made the time to go. One of the speakers was Dr. David Rendell, who's an independent equine medicine and therapeutics consultant, but also is the president of the British Equine Veterinary Association. He gave some talks on equine obesity and hyperinsulinemia-induced laminitis that I found really fascinating. So I asked him if he'd be willing to chat with me while at the conference, and we sat down and talked right there. I really just wanted to take a second before we started to mention that horses that we're talking about in this episode, those that have equine metabolic syndrome and struggle with insulin levels really first and foremost need to be managed with diet and exercise. So although Dr. Rendell and I will be talking about different medications to use and positive outcomes that we've seen, that doesn't negate the fact that these horses really should be off grass and managed tightly with tested forage, ideally, or soaked hay and balanced minerals without adding hard sweet feed or grain. These horses also should be exercised as soundness allows. That is the best thing you can do for insulin. So this conversation isn't just to skip over the fact that these horses need diet and exercise management, but we want to talk about other options for those horses that despite proper diet and management and exercise aren't getting the comfort and the blood work results that you'd want. It's been a really great conference so far. I've been super impressed with um, all the presentations and I'm not a veterinarian, so I'm not as as knowledgeable in a lot of these subjects. And I felt a lot of these presentations have been really um, attainable and accessible. So thank you for that since I've been to yours as well. Um, So I thought we could get started and you could tell me a little bit about how you became interested in endocrinopathic laminitis um, and your, your journey to studying it more. Whoa. Okay. That takes me back. Um, I suppose as, as an undergrad, I was interested in laminitis and I couldn't honestly tell you why. I think maybe I had to do a fourth year or final year project on it. And then when I got into practice, it's one of those things that you see every day, isn't it? And they just don't, or they didn't seem to go away. It was just a constant, 
a constant challenge and I guess that pricked my interest and then I worked at Lippock Equine Hospital in the UK and a large part of what we did was laboratory work and and I think Lippock was pretty pioneering in doing a lot of endocrine laminitis testing so it was a large part of my of my work there and my research interest. Uh, working at Lippert, a large part of what we did was laboratory-based medicine and, and endocrinopathic laminitis testing. And, and I don't really consider myself a, a, a researcher, to be honest. I've just tried to share information when I've had it uh, in a clinical setting. I've done a bit of work in university situations where we've done some more, more traditional research projects. But mostly I've really just reported clinical findings over the years. Yeah, and I really enjoyed the presentation this morning just for the the depth of knowledge about how much we've learned really about laminitis, even from when I first got into hoof care 10 years ago, there's so much more information available. So I was wondering if you could even just talk a little about the, the mechanism behind these metabolic related laminitic issues, just so we kind of have a baseline of what we're talking about. Yeah. So there's a, there seems to be a universal acceptance now. I think it was a bit, perhaps a bit controversial for a few years, maybe ten or so years ago. But a universal acceptance now that insulin is driving the overwhelming majority of the laminitis cases that we see. And I echo what you said at the beginning about this being a really great meeting and having Angie Van Epps and Chris Pollitt and others here and and all talking about laminitis like a complete bunch of geeks but we're all we're all on the same page that the vast majority have been driven by laminitis what we don't yet understand uh, is quite how the laminitis develops as a consequence of high insulin concentrations that is yet to be worked out but the bottom line is if we can if we can aggressively manage their insulin concentrations we can improve and potentially prevent their their laminitis and so that yeah that's what i've been talking about the last couple of days really is managing obesity and then and then managing these hyperinsulinemia associated laminitis cases yeah and and talking about the the hyperinsulinemia we were talking about or you talked about this morning the sglt2 inhibitors and you know it's a fairly new medication or for horses i should say can you tell us what they are and the results that you're seeing on these really difficult maybe refractory high insulin cases Yes, everyone's very excited about these drugs, and I think that's understandable, but we we do need to urge a little bit of caution. We don't have a huge database behind their use at the moment, but everything that we've got is pointing towards them being a really exciting development in the management of hyperinsulinemia-associated laminitis, and you said it perfectly. So what do they do? They, In the normal run of things, the kidney would resorb glucose and prevent it being lost in urine so everything would get i say everything lots of lots of different molecules including glucose would get pushed out by the kidneys uh, and then the kidneys pull back the things that the body wants to retain and glucose would be one of those things so these drugs block the receptor that is responsible for pulling the glucose back into the bloodstream which results in glucose being wasted in the urine so we're we or the horse is excreting a lot of glucose in its urine, which means the amount of glucose in the blood is dropping, which means there's less of a stimulus for insulin to be produced by the pancreas. So they're lowering insulin levels, and they, they seem to do it very quickly and very effectively. Yeah, and for people who are listening, those would be... I know that I uh, my veterinarian has worked with Steglatro. Is there, are there, I know that you mentioned three options. Um, what were those names if owners wanted to ask their vets about it? 
So the active drugs, that, the, the drug names that have been looked at, Valagliflozin is the one that was looked at first, and that's that's a drug that's owned by one of the big pharmaceutical companies, and we're all watching and waiting to see if that becomes a registered product. But then there are other human products available in the same class which seem to do a very similar job. So Atugliflozin, Canagliflozin would be the main ones. There's also Dapagliflozin, there's Empagliflozin, there's loads of them, uh, all produced for, for humans. But uh, so valagliflozin is not available, can't get hold of it. So people have been using etagliflozin is the most widely used. Stalactro is the human trade name, but there are also compounded or extemporaneous equine preparations that have been made available for horses that are often a, a lot less expensive than the human medications and are, and are more more suitable for use in horses. They come in a pace form, so they're a lot easier to give, a lot easier to sort out the right dose for them. But yeah, they all work. And then canagliflozin is a is one that's uh, uh, registered for use in humans. So Invercana is the trade name for that. I hope I'm not going to get too much trouble for mentioning trade names. But but yeah, so the, yeah, there's there's it's quite confusing. I think we're I think we're right to talk about it. It's quite confusing that there are different drug names and then there are different trade names. Yeah, and in terms of you know clinical signs, I, I've only had three horses that I've worked with that have been on them and within I mean, two weeks I've seen them significantly more comfortable you know is that pretty typical of what you're seeing on these drugs yeah reassuringly that is that is typical yeah the the, the majority of horses will improve in comfort within within days normally yeah gen- generally two three five days um, and most of the ones that we've been involved in and the ones we published on they were off other forms of pain relief and anti-inflammatories within two weeks and they were still comfortable just as a result of dropping their insulin concentrations and and being on these drugs so i i I always want to temper people's expectations because there are cases that don't respond and we don't have a huge body of long-term data on these drugs i don't want people thinking they're they're a risk-free panacea but everything we've done so far would seem to suggest that they are associated with a dramatic improvement in in horse in the comfort of horses with with laminitis and on that basis i would be increasingly proactive about using them on welfare grounds really to make these horses more comfortable and 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 eliminate or reduce the amount of suffering that that goes with their use i I don't know if yeah we talked about it this morning we've just done a a horse owner survey and i can't remember the exact figures off the top of my head but we looked at a subsection of horses that were going to be euthanized and of those of those horses that owners were considering euthanizing it was 80 90 percent of those were were pain-free or had very mild pain within uh, a month or so of of treatment with these drugs so that's going from the verge of euthanasia to being almost pain-free within a few weeks so the welfare benefits potentially are are huge it would be even better if these horses didn't get laminitis in the first place and all the management changes were instigated uh, and we didn't need to use these drugs Um, so we need to hammer that message around around managing obesity but when things do go wrong it does seem that these drugs are are a real benefit to the patient right and i feel like i have to say really the first port of call is diet and exercise (laughs) um and if not maybe you know we were talking about this if it was Chris Pollard or, or Dr. Van Epps who had mentioned that it's a disease of prevention and really, you know, putting the management in place, like you said, is very important. Yes, yeah, so I mentioned that in my talk this morning that hyperinsulinemia associated laminitis is a disease of management and it and it's a disease that we really shouldn't see because we know what causes it and we can change all those things with with management. But the, it's complex, isn't it? Trying to get owners to keep their horses in a lean body condition. We discussed yesterday some of the challenges around changing horse owner behaviour when they have very 
long-term embedded beliefs around how they should be keeping and feeding their horses and the importance of allowing horses turnout, allowing horses free access to forage. All these things are, are deeply entrenched beliefs among many horse owners, yet a lot of them do have a tendency to lead to obesity and therefore laminitis. So we have to change owners' perceptions on on what their horses should look like, what their body condition should be, and what they should be feeding them and how they should be managing them. Because the way we've traditionally done it often doesn't work, particularly if, if owners have got native types, Welsh ponies, Shetland ponies, um, those, those more cold-blooded animals that are very, very efficient utilisers of low-quality forage. If we start pumping them with food, then there is only going to be one outcome, and that, that is laminitis. Yeah, right. A special thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Cavallo. For our Humble Hoof listeners, they are offering 20% off their Cavallo Trek hoof boots using the coupon code HRN at checkout. The Trek is the world's most popular and versatile hoof boot and Cavallo's toughest trail boot, while also doubling as an option for therapy or rehab. The front closure system makes it easily adaptable to various hoof shapes, and the TPU upper design allows for maximum strength while minimizing weight for the comfort and ease of movement for your horse. These are recommended by vets and trainers and also loved as transport boots by barrel racers, ship jumpers, dressage riders, and everyone in between. Again, for 20% off a pair of treks, use the code HRN at checkout at cavallo-inc.com. Uh, and one thing that I was kind of like a huge eye-opener to me this morning was you mentioned in your talk about laminitis risk in relation to insulin values. And really, the what you were talking about was a lot lower than what I'm used to hearing. Um, so I'd love if you'd be able to recap that a little bit. Yeah, I can't take any of the credit for that. This is research that's been done by the group at the Royal Veterinary College and also um, Bell Equine, both in the UK. Um, so a couple of studies that I think have made us stand up and take notice in that they previously, I suppose, the, in, the the experimental work that Chris Pollitt and others had done inducing laminitis with, with insulin, they'd got their insulin concentrations up into the hundreds to induce laminitis, whereas these field studies looking at ponies in the UK had shown that ponies that, I'll, I'll round the figures a little bit, but ponies that have got an insulin of above 20 20% or so of them are going to get laminitis within the following three or four years. And in Ed's study, the Bell study, if insulin was above 45-ish, two-thirds of those ponies were getting laminitis within the next four years. So w- there was a tendency, I guess, to be pretty laid back about insulins that were in the tens. But I think these studies are showing us that really if horses' insulins are are in the 20s or, or, or higher, then there is a significant risk of developing laminitis. So we need to be a lot more aggressive and a lot more proactive in getting horses' insulin concentrations down into the teens or, or single figures. And, and this is in response to, to access to pasture or normal forage feeding. These studies just tested horses as they, as they stood. They weren't fasting them. They weren't. Well, they did do some, Ed, Ed did do some evocative testing in his studies, and he also reported an association between insulin concentrations after an oral sugar test and the development of laminitis. But, but yeah, they were really, really good and important studies that that have shown that we need to be driving down insulin concentrations to a much lower level than we'd previously thought. Yeah, and obviously talking about all this blood work and testing uh, for the vets and owners that are listening, what is the best protocol for testing for those levels? 
Uh, I think there's pros and cons to different options. I think you want to work with what your vet is comfortable with. I think one of the important take-home messages, I think, is just get the information. And even if you're not sampling in perfect conditions, you can account for a lot of those variables. And it's much better to have an insulin number and know, know the situation in which it was sampled than not have any information at all. I think the easiest is just to assess their response to, to forage. So a couple of test their insulin a couple of hours after they've fed or if they're at pasture the timing is a bit less critical we don't want to get fasted samples anymore we used to do that but we found that actually we'll miss an awful lot of horses and ponies that have insulin dysregulation if we if we do a fasted sample so we need to stimulate that insulin response somehow so just normal food is the easiest and that's also telling us what their laminitis risk is in response to their normal diet if you want something that is more consistent and repeatable then i like the high dose oral sugar test the k-row challenge test but different clinicians have different preferences and there are pros and cons of everything so i think the important thing is to get some data rather than rather than worrying about whether you've got the right test on the right day in the right circumstances yeah definitely and those were the main questions i had i didn't know if you had any last minute advice or anything that you think would be really important to speak about um, I think you've put a focus on most of the, the really important issues. I think just just the importance of working closely with your vet and your farrier. And I think really the, impo- the role of farriers is really underplayed in the management of laminitis. We as vets are often not seeing these cases nearly early enough and we are we may not be seeing them at all. And then when we are treating them, we're not seeing them that frequently uh, we know managing obesity the more the more frequently owners are in touch with their their healthcare provider whoever that is the more likely they are to have good outcomes so i would just try and urge more more communication and and more frequent assessment of these of these cases and also the fact that laminitis is an emergency and andrew van epps made this point this morning like just hours of time with an acutely laminitic horse or pony can really change the outcome because these changes that are happening in the lamina are, are they're happening at a pace so the sooner we can intercept those and in, introduce some of these treatments and, and stop the progression of those changes the more likely we are to have a good long-term outcome and, and managing these ponies really well in the acute phase can be a massive massive cost saving uh, and avoid the need to battle with chronic laminitis for a long period of time and and clearly it it's going to result in a huge welfare gain if we can stop them deteriorating and then having chronic recurrent laminitis and is there a way that people can get in touch with you if they want to consult with you or no yeah i don't mind i can um i can give you my email details and you can stick them up yeah awesome great well thank you so much i really appreciate your time and honestly your presentations have been great so i look forward to seeing more of your information in the future cool thank you very much for having me on the podcast yeah of course I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person, and chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too, so we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.